Welcome to the S2 Cognition Podcast. S2 is the official cognitive evaluation in sports, from youth to pro, where athletes and coaches build to win. Minnesota Vikings quarterback Kirk Cousins joins us today, and I really think you'll enjoy the conversation. Recently, he reached out about taking the S2 football evaluation, and he crushed it. In our conversation, we discussed the hardest hit he's ever taken, how our evaluation helped him affirm things about himself, and gave him new insights and confidence with the processes he scored well in. We also get into the differences in processing pre-snap versus post-snap, and the best one-liner he's ever heard from a defensive player. Kirk was very generous with his time, and we are extremely grateful to bring you that interview on the S2 Cognition Podcast next. So uh, what hit did you take that will always stay with you? I took a hit in the Capital One Bowl in 2011. It was the end of the 2010 season. Courtney Upshaw hit me on my left side, and uh, we were losing badly in the game. Uh, we really couldn't couldn't quite hang with Alabama at that time. And uh, uh, he hit me right in the back. You know, he had whiplash. It was like being in a car accident. My low back, you know, got inflamed right away. And I left the game. And... Um, uh, to this day, you know, I've got to be a little bit careful with my low back and do exercises to kind of keep that ache and pain away. You know, if I swing a golf club, I want to make sure I warm up. So uh, thankfully, it's nothing more than that. I've had an x-ray, MRI, you know, there's really nothing there. It's just uh, uh, something that, you know, I think will kind of always follow me because of how violent the hit was. Mm. So is there a specific throw that you wish you had back? And what went into that decision making uh, of the throw? Yeah, certainly. Uh, there were so many that you look back on your career. Uh, I think the one that stands out the most would be uh, the end of the 2016 season. We were playing at home in Washington. And if we won, we went to the playoffs and uh, we got the ball back with less than two minutes left. And, you know, it's really a quarterback's dream to go down in a two minute drill and win the game. And in that case, if you win the game, you go to the playoffs. And, um, Got two man. I stepped up in the pocket, threw a ball a little bit behind Pierre Garcon, and it got intercepted. And uh, it's a throw I've made many, many times. Made it against that coverage to to Pierre, and uh, for whatever reason, I just pulled the string a little bit. Didn't really believe and commit to the throw, and uh, it was behind him a hair and paid the price dearly. So that that one still doesn't sit well with me. It'll still, you know, things will come up that remind me of of that play and doesn't sit well with me. So I'm hoping here in the last several years of my career that uh, we can, you know, have some big time success to make that play a distant memory. But those are the throws that, you know, you, you learn from and you realize that, hey, we can't let uh, can't let that happen again. Yeah. So who was the player that when they retired, you audibly said, finally, thank you. No more. <laughs> well, I said it when Tom Brady retired, thinking that it was for <laughs> real. And then uh, he's right back only a month later. So, you know, I think the quarterbacks, I, I think when I came into the league, it was quarterbacks who were at the top of the league. Really, you know, in my 10th year, were still the quarterbacks at the top of the league. It was guys like Tom Brady and Phillip Rivers and Peyton Manning and Ben Roethlisberger and Drew Brees. I mean, these guys were uh, – playing, I was watching them when I was in elementary school playing college and, and then in middle school, high school, watched them play in the pros. And so for them to still be playing in my seventh, eighth, ninth year in the league, you know, as I've watched them retire, because now Peyton's retired, 
Drew is retired. Ben is retired. Philip is retired. Uh, you start to see this new wave coming in and that old guard heading out. And, um, and so it's kind of been a, all right, finally, some of these really good quarterbacks are moving on. That's really interesting that you point to a quarterback and not a defensive back or a defensive end or somebody that really gives you trouble. There's definitely those guys too. Yeah. <laughs> Has any of those quarterbacks you mentioned that you kind of looked up to, do you have a relationship with any of those guys that ever give you any, any sort of guidance or mentorship? I have run into them from time to time, you know, whether it's that we have the same agent or we're both at the Pro Bowl or both at Super Bowl events, you'll get to know guys. Um, so many shared experiences with coaches and what you go through, you know, being the quarterback of a team, the media market you're in. There's so much you can learn from guys who have either walked in your shoes ahead of you or are currently going through what you're going through just in a different city. And so uh, you do kind of build relationships through that shared experience. But there's also that dynamic of, knowing that they are the competition at the end of the day. And so you can only get so close. Yeah. So to this point in the NFL, what's been your favorite moment uh, specifically on the field? I think winning a playoff game in New Orleans in, at the end of the 2019 season was probably the, the highlight of my career so far. That was a game where, you know, we didn't really get much of a chance going into the game playing at New Orleans. They had had an unbelievable year and uh, we found a way in overtime to uh, to get the win, and I think just the improbability of it and the magnitude of it being a playoff game, it was just an absolute thrill, and uh, I'm trying to chase more moments like that up ahead. Yeah, and at what point in your transition in the NFL or to the NFL did you realize you can compete at this level, and what were some of those cues that helped that realization? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty self-aware, and so when I was drafted and came into the league, I, I wasn't ready, and I knew I wasn't ready. And uh, as a result, that does impact your confidence to some degree. Um, but over time, I started to see that the game was clicking, and I was getting better, and there were improvements being made, and I was recognizing defenses better and seeing where the voids were on the field to throw the football. And um, for me, I, I do think it was about halfway through my fourth season that uh, not only had I sort of caught up to what I needed to be to, to, to have success, but the, the break started falling my way too. And um, I think there were moments prior to that where I was showing flashes where it was, boy, he played really well for that game or for that quarter or on that throw. He did some really good stuff, but I was having a harder time putting it together over a much longer stretch of, you know, five, six, seven games. And so I think really my fourth season was when I realized, okay, I can do this not only for a game or two, I can do this for a season and for a career. And, um, you know, fortunately I've been able to kind of stay pretty consistent ever since that, uh, that year when it started to really click. Yeah. Kirk, you know, and when we evaluate athletes and we happen to be biased to where we think uh, decision-making and, and uh, brain skills are a huge part of performance at the highest level, you know, we talk to some of these guys that, like yourself, score off the charts on our evaluation, but still feel like it takes about three to five years uh, just playing at that game speed to just be able to use those gifts. Uh, I mean, I think it's really interesting to hear players at your level talk about the process of those first three to five years. Like, what's going on there? Where do you feel like it, you know, the whole it clicks? How does that happen for you? Well, I think there are variables that can make it go faster or variables that can make it take longer. I know that for me, having my entire coaching staff get let go after my second year caused me going into my third year to take a step back before I was able to then take a couple steps forward. So there were there was a moment there where I felt like, uh, you know, going from year two to year three, 
I wasn't, I wasn't going forward. I was going backwards to learn a new system and a new language and a new way of seeing the game. And so when you have consistency in terms of the system, the coaches, the players around you, if those people are good, you know, many times that can speed up your learning process. I think the opposite is true. If either you have a lot of change around you or you're constantly relearning and you're not able to really learn where all the bones are buried in the offense you play in, or, you know, you're surrounded by people who, for lack of a better word, just aren't very good. They're not really helping you in the way they need to be. Then that development can take longer and there's more than on you to figure it out as opposed to relying on people around you. So uh, thankfully, I did have really good people around me. And uh, I think it was a combination of coaching and great players and then kind of figuring out what you needed to work on where it all started to click that fourth year. Naturally, as a player goes right from high school to college to pro, you hear the speed of the game intensifies. It gets faster. The game is changing. What do you feel like helped you in that transition from strictly a decision-making process? I think simplifying, you know, being able to take that, which is complex, which uh, I think the NFL game is far more complex than college was, and college is far more complex than high school. So as the complexity grew, being able to study it, learn it in an organized fashion so that the complex feels simple, so that when you go to the line of scrimmage, you don't feel like your head swimming, you don't think about all the coverages they could play or all the blitzes they could give or all the plays you could run, but really organizing it in your mind so that you know, hey, in this situation, there's only so many coverages they're going to play. There's only so many blitzes they're going to bring, and there's only so many plays we're going to run. And so being able to compartmentalize all the information that you know and organize it such that you're, you're aware of when it's going to be relevant, I think that, that really helped me in my preparation and then as my mind goes through uh, the actual play of a game. You took the S2 evaluation uh, for football to learn about your unique split-second decision skills. How did that evaluation capture your split-second decisions and speed of the game? Well, I was fascinated when I heard about uh, what is tested with S2 cognitions, uh, eight different tests. I uh, felt like as I went through my pro career and watched so many draft picks not pan out and watched so many uh, players who were undrafted go on to Pro Bowl-level success, I knew, and I watched it happen in college as well, there's a lot more to having success than, than the stuff they're testing, you know, the 40-yard dash and the shuttle and the, uh, the bench press and what you can see, your height, weight, speed. Uh, everybody can see that, but that's really not what's separating great players. And yet the things that are separating great players, you, you can put a, uh, you can name the trait, but you don't really have a way to measure it objectively. And so it is becoming very difficult to evaluate people. But um, I felt like what S2 is doing is is putting an objective measure on those traits. And that's what really piqued my interest. And I wanted to take the test. I was a little nervous to see if it was going to, you know, expose some weaknesses. But the way I saw it was I can't lose because I'm either going to be affirmed that Okay, the reason you've made it to where you are is because these things are strong or I'm going to get really, really helpful information to be told where I need to get better in a way that I never would have been able to discover otherwise. So I viewed it as I can't lose. I'm either going to get a pat on the back or I'm going to get a kick in the pants. But either way, it's going to help me as a player develop. <laughs> yeah, Kirk, it's interesting. You, you brought up two really big points for us as, as scientists in this space. Uh, first is we have historically always leaned to only measure what we can see, 
right? And so that makes anything above the shoulders really difficult. As scientists, we've really struggled with being so isolated uh, and siloed in the lab. And, you know, we've been measuring these cognitive processes that we went through with you for decades. Some of them have been in the scientific literature for 70 plus years. Um, but we don't get out of that box, I think, as scientists, just like as players where we don't want to show our vulnerabilities, we don't want to sort of bring this into a space that is its own world and try to translate. And, you know, it's only through discussions like this right here where we're finally learning to how to translate, right? I mean, you're taking a leap of faith here that, hey, I'm going to work with these scientists to understand the way I process information. And we're taking a leap that, hey, we've got an elite athlete right here that's not going to laugh at us or say a bunch of nerds trying to tell me what to do, right? So I think it takes those types of synergy to finally say, hey, you know what? We do have these tools to measure and to understand and hopefully, uh, you know, with working with you guys, actually move the needle and, hey, we can get better. I think it's a tremendous uh, tool. I think the ability that you provide also to interpret the data is so important to be able to say, okay, what do I do with this, uh, good or bad? And what drills can I apply or how can I structure practice and meetings to better uh, prepare and develop myself as an athlete? That interpretation is also important once you do get the data. So, Kirk, what was the experience like? taking the evaluation? And then what, what did you learn about yourselves and how you do process split second uh, decisions and information? Well, it, it's a test you can take very quickly. Uh, it's not going to take you all day. I mean, I was in and out in probably 30 to 45 minutes. And uh, um, I had done similar exercises in the past, but never with an end game of what do I do with that information? I think in the past, it was just as an evaluation tool for someone else to evaluate me. And then that was it. And obviously, um, the impact test, which we use as a baseline for any head injury we might sustain, there are elements of that test that, that might show up with us to similar type tests in terms of what they're asking you to do with your brain. But uh, again, that's just to form a baseline. There really is nothing to gain from that. And so to actually do this and then be able to say, here's how you scored among others. Here's a strength. Here's a weakness. And here's a strength you can lean on, and here's a weakness, and here's how to develop it. That's where I think the, uh, the secret sauce is, is doing something with the information. So how will these affirmations and new insights uh, shape your training moving into next season and, and further down your career? Well, it really starts with saying, okay, I got to where I am somehow, and it's a variety of factors. It's a complicated dynamic, right. but I was under the assumption that something in these tests was going to reveal that I have a strength that has helped me get to where I am. And I think that was true. I think the results showed, hey, these are a couple areas where you are unique. And what's funny about um, the S2 cognition is these are not things that I'm going into the weight room and training every day of my life. You know, if I'm really, really good at bench pressing, I would say, well, that would make sense because I've been doing that since I was 17 years old. <laughs> Um, what's unique about this is if I'm really good at one of these exercises, it likely is something that I'm innately good at or have been developing without realizing it. And so that was very fascinating. And then other areas where I'm, uh, struggling or it's a weakness, I say, well, I've never tried to develop that. I've never worked on it. So I'd like to see how good I could be in that area if I actually devoted time to working on it. 
so both are, are interesting because it is the next frontier in kind of your development as an athlete. And so there's a lot of room for growth uh, once you find out areas that, that you are, uh, are weaker in. And, uh, and that's kind of where I'm going to take it from here, talking with coaches. How do we structure practice? How do we structure meetings? What are some things I can do to feel better on the practice field? And to have data to back it up instead of just, I feel like we should practice like this. It's a little more right. uh, helpful argument to a coach when you can say, no, the data shows <laughs> that I need to practice this way, not just that I feel like it. Yeah, and that, that was a pretty introspective answer, Kirk. So we appreciate it. Uh, you know, with that being said, do you wish you were able to take this, you know, earlier in your career? Oh yeah, no, I and I I did in certain ways, not necessarily S two, but there were tests I took at the Senior Bowl at the Combine that teams teams had contracted out to take, but I never get the results, and I I certainly if I got the results, I didn't get anybody talking to me about what to do with them. So uh, I wish I had learned it when I was much much younger. Um, and then more importantly, once you learn it, you know, how do you improve it? Mm -hmm. And how important is it for young quarterbacks to understand their decision-making and processing, uh, strengths and weaknesses and how important that is to the game. I mean, you, you've alluded to it this, this entire podcast, how important the decision-making objective element is to the game. So how important is it for the young quarterbacks? Yeah, it's, uh, if, if again, I would say the same advice that my quarterback coach at Michigan State gave me on day one at, at college is if you can make good decisions and manage the game well in terms of the clock and timeouts and knowing when to go long and when to take the check down, and, which goes back to decision making, but the discernment of it within the flow of a game, if you can do that well, um, it's you're going to be hard to to, to beat out you're going to be hard to lose it's going to be hard for you to lose your spot on the field and so there's a lot of attention put on arm strength a lot of attention put on your movement skills as an athlete a lot of attention put on your swagger uh you know leadership has been a buzzword over the last several years as a quarterback but ultimately can you make good decisions and if you can't why can't you and how can we improve that i think what you're doing in your testing and in your data is getting at the heart of that Kirk, you know, you, you're, you're looking at, you're looking back now, right? I mean, you're at the stage of your career where you're at the top and you're looking back at the last 20 years of work you've put in. Um, and we are talking about youth development. And I think in sport in general, not just football, we've seen a lot of advances in youth sports. Um, where do you think that, you know, in, in this, I'm not looking at a particular person or a particular coach or anything like that, but where do you think that we should be changing development at the youth in the youth space? Uh, and let's, let's narrow it down to quarterbacks. What do you think that we could yeah. be doing differently to, to help the quarter? I mean, obviously it's a huge skill position, obviously, even at the NFL level, all 32 teams, you know, haven't identified, Hey, this is, this is it. What do you think we can be doing differently? Well, I have two young boys, a four-and-a-half-year-old and a, a three-year-old, so I am right now asking these questions about long-term athlete development. Where do you start? What's the end game? How do you get there? And the fact that I'm kind of on the other side of it as uh, uh, you know, going into my 11th year in pro football, and I'm raising two boys who are in the very beginnings of you know, going to karate class and going to little tennis lessons and uh, kicking the soccer ball around at the very beginning – and I'm kind of saying, OK, I, I'm at the end. They're at the beginning. You know, what does that process look like to go from start to finish? Uh, those are the questions I'm asking of people. And it's fascinating. But I know with my boys, the last thing I want to do is kind of lock them into a very specific way of doing something. So we go out in the driveway, we hit the tennis ball. 
I want to make sure they're hitting left-handed, right-handed, uh, that they're whatever feels good to them, that they're trying, that they're getting experience with different styles, different ways of doing it, rather than say you have to hit this way with this grip all the time. I like kind of giving a wide range uh, of experiences that they can kind of take in to develop their nervous system and their skill set. And then same with the sports and activities they do. Uh, but then as you get more specific to quarterbacking, again, I think that, uh, you know, if someone's struggling with their decision making, you got to look at the why behind it. And, uh, you know, how's their vision? Uh, how's their processing? Uh, is there a drill we can do to simulate the game more? I've often been frustrated with how many times a player is evaluated, even to the level of a pro day or a combine where they're just throwing on air in shorts and a T-shirt to wide open receivers. That's just not football. I mean, it's a great great tool to get some sense of how they spin the football, but you're scratching the surface as to what you're actually going to be asking him to do on a Sunday afternoon down the road. So the inability to simulate 11 on 11 full speed with pads on the inability to simulate that easily makes evaluation very difficult because the way they evaluate and really the only way they know to evaluate is just so far from what you actually are asking the quarterback to do on, on a Sunday in the fall. Yeah. So two, two points to that, right. Is one, especially starting them at that young and it's, it's kind of humorous. Uh, S2 actually has its own uh, 10 U baseball team in which we do nothing but cognitive drills with these guys. But yeah, at a young age, especially before you get to those, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of age, you can really move the needle um, in this decision-making, uh, train decision-making before, you know, you're sort of become, as we, for lack of a better word, hardwired. Um, you know, I think it, that that's really, really cool. And the other thing we've learned is, you know, there are technologies out there where, you know, hey, you're going to do this iPad app for 30 minutes a day and you're going to be a better quarterback. You're going to make better decisions. When we know, you know, the scientific literature has been screaming for the last 10 years, you have got to do it in the context. You've mm -hmm. got to simulate exactly what you're going to be dealing with on game day to actually improve performance. So what you just said there about, hey, how can we get to a situation where, you know, it's going to be hard as a 14-year-old to go to the park and say, okay, I need 21 friends so that I can simulate this. But can we simulate game right. conditions right. in the pressure that we've really, really gotten at, right? And, and just a really simple anecdote about that. We went to this really elite high school quarterback uh, camp and we had them just firing away either to the right or to the left to a receiver. And that was all they were doing. And their accuracy was like 96 to 97%. And all we said was, hey, let's put a guy in the middle of the field. He's going to be a middle linebacker, and he's just going to go left or right. That's all he's going to do. He's not going to pressure the quarterback, nothing. Uh, there's no threat of a hit or an interception or anything. Accuracy took a huge nosedive just by having that guy in the middle of the field going left or right. And then we decided, okay, well, let's put a lineman in there that's going to rush and not hit the quarterback. You don't have to worry about getting hit or anything. Just make the throw. And sure enough, now just with two guys on the field, those distracting elements, accuracy was like mid-60s. So just simulating those environments is really, really key to, to the development. I found having command as a quarterback of the playbook has enabled me to play uh, more comfortably in traits that you think shouldn't affect it. So, for example, this spring, we're learning a whole new system. So my ability to call the play, recognize the defense, make protection changes, and then throw with conviction 
is not the same as it was a year ago because I'm learning this new system. And so my grip pressure on the ball now isn't what I want it to be. My decisiveness, my accuracy, there's a lot of things at very minute levels that you feel are different just because the play you called, you don't own to the same degree that you did a year ago. And so um, you get to a place where you say, I have to own these plays by September or it's going to affect the way I I play the game, the way I play the position. And so uh, the down the line impact of mentally not owning what your material is can be very significant. Well, with an instinctive learning score like you have, Kirk, I would put all the faith in the world that you're going you're gonna to pick it up and do just fine. <laughs> That's right. Can you describe the difference? I'm glad you went there uh, of, of processing and, and decision making and thinking, you know, pre-snap, what a quarterback has to do, obviously, with all these new terms and getting everyone in the right position versus post-snap when everything speeds up and things go faster and now you have distractions and you got to stare down the, the barrel of a gun, they say. And, you know, can you, can you allude to the different process that is pre and post-snap? There is a lot of information processing. Uh, certainly when you have a play clock and you have substitutions and you have a play come in and you've got to communicate that to the team. And then when you break the huddle, you're looking again at the play clock and, you know, you got to send a motion or a shift and, you know, you have, uh, pre-snap decision-making based on coverage and front and pressure. And then certainly the footwork, you know, you have the fixed, the fixed pieces of the play, no matter what defense they play, your drop is going to be the same footwork. Uh, the progression might be the exact same regardless of the covers they play. So you have these fixed elements to the play. And then you have these things that are going to change post-snap of, uh, you know, based on our protection, do we have an issue or are we picked up? And uh, based on the coverage post-snap, is it the same as it was pre-snap or did it change? And uh, was there a man or a zone indicator pre-snap that tells you if you're getting match coverage or if it's going to be zone coverage where they're reading your eyes? And, um, you know, is, is the receiver going to the depth that the paper says he should go to or did he change his depth because he got held up at the line of scrimmage? And, and so you have all these visual feedback, all this visual feedback coming at you that says, OK, the throw was supposed to be at 16 yards, but he's at 12. And if he's at 12, is that still the right throw or now do I need to to uh, change my process? And many of these things are instinctive. Many of these things you've trained and you just, after the fact you watch the film and they say, why did you say no to that player and throw to someone else? And you say, I don't know. I just felt it. I don't know. Um, and it's amazing how many times your instincts are right. And if you just trust your instincts and do what your brain is telling you to do and don't overthink how many times, even if it goes against what the coach told you, your instincts are actually what you can rely on, especially if you've trained them well over weeks, months, and, and years. Just a real quick question on that, because we we often talk at S2 about violation of expectancy. And really, you know, in all sports, we walk up to the line of scrimmage. We walk up to the plate. We go to the, you know, the bench after a timeout. or We come out with this expectation of how a play is going to unfold. In your opinion, Kirk, what percentage of time do you think that things go exactly as it's planned. Or you can give me the inverse. What percentage yeah. of time is there a violation of expectancy? You know, we call it contingency plans. And Kevin Stefanski, as he coached me, used to say, what are you going to do with the ball when it's not there? In other words, when the guy's not open, when the plan we drew up isn't there, what's your plan? And he said, really, the way you separate yourself as a quarterback at the pro level is what you do when it's not there. Because when it is there, most of the guys can do it and and how you separate yourself is what you do when it's not there and so I take pride in 
preparing for, okay, what's my contingency plan or what are my contingency plans? If I get cover two into this play, that's a dream look. I know what to do. If I get cover three, what am I doing? If I get all out blitz, what am I doing? If I get quarters, what am I doing? Those are the, the moments where you can really separate yourself. And the reality is that many, many times you call a play and you get the dream look. But many, many times you call the play and it's nothing like you expected. And <laughs> you can go through the first 15 plays of a game because coaches mm -hmm. script those plays. And so that's a great test for, hey, we scripted these plays because we had a thought process on what would happen. We can go back and look at how many times did what you think would happen happen. And sometimes it does, but many times it doesn't. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that if you're banking on what we expect to have happen, happen all the time, that's a, a great recipe to be, to be benched and to be out of the league. And, and <laughs> the way to make sure you stay on the field is to think through contingency plans for every play you have. Yeah, it's interesting, right? One of the greatest areas you excelled in was the improvisation piece of this task. How important is it, right? When stuff is not, you know, the looks you're looking and, and deciding on are not there. And now you got to break the pocket, extend the play, make those uh, contingency plan plays. Uh, how, how comfortable are you and how important is it at that level? Well, that was interesting to get that feedback because there have been times where I've wondered just how natural is that for me. And uh, I think if anything, it's given me a bit of a green light to not allow X's and O's on a paper or a coach's desires for how the play should look to stop me from leaning into that innate skill of improvising and going and making something happen and just playing a little bit by feel, which largely I think is how you get to where you are as a quarterback is because some of it is instinctive to you and it comes naturally. So um, I'm going to try to lean into that a little more. And I think the data, the objective data is kind of giving me a shot in the arm to say, this isn't just something I want to try or I feel like looking into. This is something that may actually be a, a trait of mine, an asset of mine objectively. And if so, you know, let's go, let's go put that to use more. And how much of the quarterback play is luring DBs or linebackers or manipulating them in such a way that you get them to, as Brandon said, you want to violate their expectation, right? So they expect you to yeah, do something right. and now you're yeah. changing. How, how much of that goes into the quarterback position? You, you want plays to look the same but be different. And you want plays that will look to the defense that they're different, but really they're, they're just the same play for, for us. So you always want to confuse and uh, – and keep the defense guessing, keep them on their toes, not know what's coming next, and preferably do that with as simple of an offense and as simple of a plan as possible. And so you want that illusion of complexity where the the actual substance is, is filled with simplicity. And that's really the coach's goal as he puts the plan together, and that's where he can take a lot of pressure off of an offense or off of a quarterback if he can create that complexity uh, or the illusion of it. And, and for the players, it still feels like we're maintaining that simplicity. Yeah, and I really like how you put that, right? We've touched on, you know, instinctive learning and your ability to improvise as well. Another area is distraction control that we measure. And how important is that? And what types of distractions do you see? And also, how do you train them as a quarterback, right? You're, you're feeling all these type of pressures. What are those distractions, whether in the pocket, when making a decision to throw? And, and how do you feel? Distractions are everywhere. Like you said, I could be in the pocket and have a middle linebacker blitzing right over the center and uh you know I have to keep my eyes downfield and I can't allow feeling that around my body or my feet or my arm to affect me too much I need to obviously process that okay if he's about to hit my arm I got to adjust my arm angle but at the same time if he's not going to hit my arm I can't pretend that he's there and feel a ghost and then affect the way I play so 
um, the distraction is only is only uh, helpful to a point before you've got to be able to, to look past it. And obviously there's crowd noise and there's uh, people trying to get your attention that you can't afford it to cause you to lose focus on what's most important. And then you also have distractions, you know, on a Thursday, you might be having something come up with your family away from football that you can't allow to creep into your preparation or your, your plan to get ready for Sunday. So there's distractions in the moment and there's distractions uh, on, a, on, a, on a bigger level away from the game and the ability to, uh, to hyper-focus. And when you're in it, to say there's nothing else, nothing more important than where I am right now and being fully present in the moment right now, the ability to do that and to do that naturally, instinctively, uh, can many times be the difference in win or loss and success or failure. Yeah, that's a real great point because I think it does highlight the overlap between what we measure, which is you know your brain's ability to, to think and make decisions rapidly with also the psychological or mental piece, right? And what you said, I mean, it's great. You touched on them all, right? As, as a quarterback, you're going to have the visual distraction of hands in your face, pocket collapse. You're going to have auditory, you're hearing footsteps, guys yelling, crowd noise. You're going to have the tactile. People are going to be grabbing your jersey, hitting your feet, whatever. But you also have this, this sort of uh, internal, or you know, it's e- even a monologue. You know, a coach just yelled at me. I just had a, a pick on the last series. Uh, just one of my boys fell off his bike this week. All of that also people don't really understand or appreciate, you know, you're trying to make a throw within this very tight passing window in a very circumscribed period of time. Just that little noise can really hinder one's ability to to focus, just have that sort of Drew Brees, eyes as big as plates staring down the receiver while the world is literally collapsing around, you know? Uh, I don't think people appreciate what you guys have to do. So I'm glad, I'm glad you really talked, talked about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And split second decisions aren't only important to the quarterback position. You may or may not have a guy at receiver who we tested at uh, LSU since we, we work with them. His, his brain is off the charts. I put it up against anybody. How important is it and how helpful is it to have a guy who processes as quickly and dynamically as you do? He's a fascinating example because he was the fifth wide receiver taken in his year's draft. And so there was uh, four other teams that said, you know, we're going to go a different direction. And so Justin's production would point to the fact that whatever traits were valued at the draft, while they have value and, and many teams want them and I want them as a quarterback, Whatever traits Justin had that were hidden, if you will, or less obvious, have been the difference over the last couple of years with the production he's had. Um, his ability after the catch uh, is very unique because if he had run 4-3 or 4-2 coming out in the draft, he wouldn't have been the fifth receiver taken. He would have gone higher. And yet his production after the catch would be as if he runs a 4-3 or a 4-2. And so there's some level of spatial awareness and knowing where he is in space and body control that goes back to traits that I don't think to this point have been measured very well. Otherwise he would have been valued higher at the draft. Um, just great body control, great spatial awareness, uh, and, and a great athlete in other sports. You know, when we go play softball, he Mm -hmm. goes and hits home runs and is the pitcher and, 
just has a great <laughs> coordination to him. Basketball, very natural. So there's something there, not just as a skilled receiver, but as a, a nervous system, brain, athlete. Uh, things just come naturally to him. And that's Justin Jefferson if we didn't name him. <laughs> <laughs> when he said Justin, I was like, well, I'm going to let Kirk name him, you know. <laughs> uh, so how valuable would this information be from a scheme perspective, from a understanding perspective, simply from other teammates and your coaching staff to understand, okay, this is how this guy's uniquely wired. This is how we're going to yeah. give him schematics, you know, rules and schemes yeah. and distractions. Uh, how valuable would that be, especially for you to know? Well, certainly you can use it as an evaluation tool, but I think more, more important than an evaluation tool is to say, uh, how do I better lead this person? Because I, I believe you as a leader, you treat everyone fairly, but you don't treat them the same. And so one player may, may need to be on the field with walkthroughs to physically walk through the play to learn it. Other players may visually want to see the drawing on the screen to learn it. Some players, um, may need to have one-on-one -on -one time. Other players are going to be low maintenance and they can sit in a dark room for two hours and never fall asleep and pick up the entire system. So to expect as a coach or as a teacher, or as a leader, to have every person following you learn the exact same way is naive. It's, it's ignorant. That's not the case. Everybody's, there's diversity. Everybody's going to learn different ways. So as a teacher, as a coach, as a leader, how can I communicate best to each individual person especially the ones that I'm really going to be counting on, uh, this information will help you do that more efficiently, more effectively. And, uh, and that's so valuable, far, far more than just as an evaluation tool, being able to actually say, hey, I'm stuck with this guy, so let's find the best way to, to teach, teach him and, and learn together. <laughs> you know, this, this will help with that too. Yeah. At S2, we always say that split-second cognition has been a critical yet often missing piece of the athlete puzzle, and you've alluded to that a couple times today. An athlete certainly has to have the physical, technical, tactical, motivational tools to be successful. But the game does place incredible demands on speed and flexibility of the decision-making and processing elements. How critical is that, is that piece of the puzzle in your mind? I don't think you can get very far um, without the ability to you know, str think strategically and prepare uh, the right ways, you know, to not just practice, but to know how to practice. Uh, uh, you know, when you have a, um, a mind that's capable of going to elite levels, a brain that's capable of going to elite levels, you will always overachieve expectations. You will always be a better athlete than people give you the credit for. And the opposite is true. If you don't have the brain that is capable of going to elite levels, no matter how fast you are, no matter what your physical traits are, no matter how good you look off the bus, you will always under deliver because at some point the rubber's going to hit the road and you're going to be calling on that brain to show up and it's not going to be there. So, um, you know, you want to be someone who over delivers and, uh, and that I think shows up with, uh, with the brain that, that, that you have and the skills you can develop. I do feel like we're shifting a little bit to to some value in that in our culture. I mean, you see, um, you know, uh, less demand on the physical characteristics. And of course, you know, we work in Major League Baseball and we hear this all the time. To be an elite hitter, you've got to have 2010 or better vision. And we all we all sit around and giggle because we're like, you know how many dudes there are that have 2010 vision that can't hit 95 miles an hour? Uh, you know, so, it, it you know, I think a lot of these things are necessary, but not completely sufficient uh, right you know and 
again, just hearing you talk that through, I, I just, I don't know how much people appreciate what goes in to be an, and I mean, I know there's guys on the couch on Sundays that are like, I could do this. I, I can do this, but they have no idea uh, all of the things that need to be in place and aligned and on top of the 10,000 hours on top of the years of exposure and experience. Uh, what's required to be able to do this on Sunday. So, you know, we really appreciate you talking this through with us. Absolutely. No, I, I'm fascinated by it as well. I think when I'm done playing, I'd love the chance to evaluate the future talent and see just how good I could be at understanding, uh, you know, who's going to go on to success and who's not. And, um, you know, I think the more I can learn about that space too, the more it's going to help me in my development. So, um, I'm excited about this next frontier. That's exactly what I think it is. And, uh, um, you know, I want to tap into it ahead of other people to hopefully gain an advantage. We appreciate that, Kirk. We're going to get into what most people find is the most uh, fun part of the podcast. But we're just going to ask you three random and funny questions and just be as forthright as possible. Are you ready to roll? Ready to roll. All right, man. So what is the worst thing you've ever eaten before and after a game? Um we get some pretty bad food on the buses after the game. Sometimes, you know, you're, <laughs> and if we play like a one o'clock or noon game. I mean, you haven't eaten since I'll probably eat at 8 a.m. before I head to the stadium. And then maybe I have a banana or something in the locker room, but I don't eat again until we're back on the bus at five at night. And so you're usually starving and you're hoping and praying that the food is good. But every now and then you'll get something that just doesn't sit right or doesn't look right. But um, off the top of my head, you know, the big challenge for me is I just don't have a big appetite before or during games. And so I have to kind of force myself to eat breakfast, try to find some things that I know will be okay. But I know that, you know, third, fourth quarter, sometimes I'm really hungry, but I just don't, I can't eat. If I eat, I, I, I won't feel right. And so uh, managing that has always kind of been a, something that, that I'm trying to figure out as a challenge, even after all these years. <laughs> what's the best one-liner from a defensive player who sacked you the one i hear is you like that right i mean when i get sacked, <laughs> when i get get tackled if they're smart they'll just say you like that and 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 head out michael bennett you know michael bennett was pretty mean-spirited a few years ago on monday night football he was on the seahawks and they were rolling at this time they had just come off of a super bowl title and and he he uh, batted a ball down or or made a play and you know, he let me know that I was never going to be a player ever in this league. And uh, I, I walked up the field thinking, that's kind of mean-spirited. And, you know, hopefully hopefully I, prove, I proved him wrong. But, um, uh, you know, you'll hear stuff every now and then. But at some point, too, you know that if they're talking to you, you probably earn their respect as well. That's right. Last question. If you weren't a quarterback in the uh, National Football League, what would your profession be? I've asked that of myself a lot, and someday football is going to end, so i gotta, I got to answer that question eventually. I haven't had to yet. I'm still able to kind of go to recess every day and play football for a living. But uh, <laughs> uh, I was going to go to medical school. That was my thought. Looking back, I don't know if that would have been the right decision. I, I just don't know if that would have been a great fit for me, that that's what, what I would have wanted to do passion-wise. I probably, knowing myself, I probably would have dug in deep and sucked it up and gone to medical school and graduated. But uh, after I started practicing, I probably would have figured out that this isn't the best thing for me. Ever since being in the pros, I've just kind of gravitated towards business, investing. I like reading books about entrepreneurs who have had great success and, and what they've built from nothing. And so I, I have an inclination, I think most people do, you know, a desire to build something, create something, be an entrepreneur. And so when I'm done playing, I could see myself kind of getting into that. Or if not myself, you know, using the capital that, that I've earned through football to try to 
uh, get behind other people who are doing that and try to say, hey, how can I provide capital for you to for you to build something, create something, and we could be a small part of it uh, through the capital we provide. So those are some things I'm interested in doing when I'm done playing. Well, Kirk, man, we really appreciate you jumping on with us. Uh, he's Kirk Cousins of the Minnesota Vikings quarterback. Thanks so much, and we do like that for the record. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I appreciate you guys. Really enjoyed meeting you. Really enjoyed being able to go through the test with us too. And, uh, um, you know, I, like I said, it's the next frontier, and so I, I do think that uh, you're going to see more and more of it up in the days ahead and, and at younger and younger levels as well.